Uh, we're going to begin in chapter 41. We've already kind of started it, but um, it's important to remember the context here, which is chapter 40. He, he, Joseph, is in prison, and he interprets two of the prisoners' dreams. One is the cupbearer of the pharaoh, and the other one is the uh, baker of the pharaoh. The baker, ultimately, we end up being executed. The cupbearer, uh, his dream, his which becomes a, a declaration of what will occur, is found to be true. He's released. Joseph had said to him, please remember me. When you are, um, uh, when you get back to the to the, the Pharaoh's household, but we end chapter forty with this statement: Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So that's that's kind of where we're at in terms of the of the text. So chapter forty-one, verse two. After two whole years, now you connect the very last verse of chapter forty with the very first verse of chapter forty-one. Joseph is in prison two more years, and immediately Americans stand up and say, "That's not fair. That's not just." But God has a lot going on here. Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. The Pharaoh, if you're interested in this, is Historus II. We are in the very, very significant 2012th dynasty of Egypt's history. This is what's called the Middle Kingdom, but this is one of the most important dynasties in the history of, of ancient Egypt. And the Pharaoh, again, is Historus II, dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they were fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile. After them stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. Behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. Behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and belighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. Pharaoh awoke. Behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, verse 8, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dream, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Now, before we get into the next paragraph, which is how Joseph gets into this situation, I want to review very quickly what is the worldview of ancient Egypt. I think it is really important to understand that. Otherwise, you don't understand some of the things Pharaoh says, and you don't understand some of the things Joseph says, and you really don't understand the larger picture of what's going on. First of all, the, the Egyptian worldview taught that the, the Nile River was the bloodstream of the god Osiris, one of the many, many gods of Egypt. There were dozens and dozens and dozens of them. Because the Nile was the lifeblood of Egypt. I think you all know that. The Nile, I don't have a map in front of me, but the Nile rises in Central Africa. It's one of the only rivers in the world that flows from the south toward the north. Most rivers flow from the north to the south. But anyway, it, 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 as it flows, it collects all kinds of silt, and then it empties that silt in the Great Delta, one of the largest deltas in the world, where it empties into the Mediterranean Sea. And the Nile floods, predictably, almost exactly the same week every year. Now, it's different today because they put a lot of dams. But anyway, that Nile River was the lifeblood of Egypt. 
that it, its rich soil that it brought through is what, what fertilized the entire Nile Valley. Everything depended on the, the frequency of the flooding, the fertility of the land along the Nile, and the Nile, therefore, was the central issue of ancient Egypt. Without the Nile, it's just a desert. Secondly, the Egyptian worldview taught and, and really held to this is bringing the Egyptian word into English. It's called ma'at. Now, that doesn't mean anything to you, but this is really important because ma'at means order, stability. And this leads to the third key point I want to remember, I want you to remember, that in the Egyptian worldview, the pharaoh was considered to be a god. He was the incarnate god. He was the incarnation of the god Ra, Amun-Ra, actually several others. But his job, his primary job, was to maintain ma'at, maintain order and stability. So when the pharaoh dreams a dream like this, when Sistoris II dreams a dream like this, it, is, it causes him to panic because it's these images and first case, a group of cows, the second case, grain, grains of, of corn, both of those come up out of the Nile. So because of the centrality of the Nile, the bloodstream of the King Osiris, the importance of Ma'at, maintaining order and stability, and the Pharaoh's role as an incarnate god was to maintain this. A dream like that's going to panic the Pharaoh. Okay, does that make sense? What I just quickly reviewed? If that makes sense, then you understand the importance of the next paragraph. Then the cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in the custody of the house of the captain's guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, having a dream with its own interpretation. Verse 12, a young Hebrew was there, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. As he interpreted it to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office. The baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. They quickly brought him out of the pit. When he had shaved himself, changed his clothes, he came into Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream. And there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said that you, when you have your dream, you can interpret it. Notice Joseph's response. It is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now you see two things there. Number one, you see the humility of Joseph. I mean, he could have taken that as an opportunity to put his thumbs in his suspenders and say, yeah, I did that for the cupbearer. I did that for the baker. Yeah, I'm a pretty important guy. And I become the head of the prison, representing. He doesn't do any of that. He says, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And the second thing that you see is the faith of Joseph. Because in a, in a sense, this is a rather bold declaration. It, you could almost say it's presumptuous. Because Joseph is assuming God's going to give him the ability to interpret it. That's not how he puts it. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. 
So you see humility, you see faith and dependence, which is one of the reasons why this passage keeps saying, the Lord is with Joseph, the Lord is with Joseph, the Lord is with Joseph. I've often wondered as I study things like this, and even when you study the early chapters of the book of Exodus, when Pharaoh's Historus II heard Joseph say, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. What did he think that meant? Because for him, as I just quickly reviewed, his worldview is a world filled with gods, lots of gods, God of the Nile, gods dealing with every natural force you can imagine, gods of the sky, gods of Amun-Ra. He would pull a chariot across the sky. The chariot he's pulling is the sun. That's how they explain things. So when he hears him use God, singular, what does he think that means? One of the frustrating things about this is he doesn't ask any questions. If he did, it's not recorded. But how did he interpret? What's the content of the meaning for him of the word God? You know what it means. I know what it means. Joseph knew what it means, but what did he mean? At least he's recognizing something. Only the supernatural can explain a dream to me. So for him, his supernatural world, which was a world filled with gods, would very, be very easy for him to say, okay, the supernatural explained it to me. That's probably how he understood that. Verse 17, then can Pharaoh... I, can I ask you a question? Would Pharaoh not know that Joseph's God was different than, than his gods? Or was there no well, it would have been very common in the ancient world because every kingdom, every group, every nation had their own gods. And for you to recognize these people who came from Canaan into our land, you know, in earlier, early generation, uh, they have other gods. That's fine. They, there would be no question about no difficulty, no, no difficulty processing that, because every group, every nation had their own god or gods. And so for him, that's not particularly difficult. It's interesting, he doesn't ask any questions about that. It's just he assumes it. Okay, you're talking about your God or maybe my God, but it's a supernatural, and that was very, that fit very easily into their worldview. Because in this, to some extent, that's even true in modern psychology, I suppose. But in the ancient world, dreams, dreams were assumed to be the gods communicating to you. And it's therefore so critical, and this was especially true for kings and people in positions of authority, they had, quote, wise men, you saw that phrase used here, wise men who would interpret it for them. The gods are trying to tell me something. This is a weird, strange dream. You tell me what it means. What are the gods trying to say to me? And so even though uh, Joseph uses the word God, Elohim, singular, for them, that is Pharaoh and his crew, they were okay, that fits very much with us. Only the supernatural world can interpret correctly what a dream is. So now... It's what's going to happen given those two factors, verse 17. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Now, I'm, I'm not going to read all that because it's exactly what we just read earlier. Look at verse 25, about the, the cows and about the ears of corn. Now, verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. 
The seven good cows are seven years. And the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. Point. They're both teaching the same thing. Now, verse 27. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are the seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. Stop for a minute before we look at verse 32. Again, Joseph declares in verse 28, God has just explained to you what he's about to do. So again, for Pharaoh to process that, it would not be difficult for him to put that into his worldview. Amun-Ra, who controls the weather, okay, he's telling me what to do. But what is particularly extraordinary here is how Joseph, as he communicates this, interprets it very clearly. you got seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. God's telling you what he's going to do for the next 14 years. You, Pharaoh, are in charge of maintaining Ma'at, the order and stability of Egypt. What are you going to do now? And so Joseph, and it's almost audacious, really, on his part, Joseph now takes on the role of a counselor. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning, and wise man, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. Let them gather all the food of these good years that's coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the city. Let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt. So the land may not perish through the famine. So Joseph moves from interpreting the dream to giving counsel to the Pharaoh, the most powerful man on planet Earth at that time, approximately 1880 B.C., give or take a few years, has just heard a Jew who had been in prison give him counsel on what to do. But it's wise counsel. So Pharaoh has to accept two things. As, uh, again, let me keep reiterating this. In the ancient world, it was very common for them to assume the gods are communicating to us through dreams. I have wise men who interpret the dreams that tell me what to expect. I trust what Joseph just said. That's a reasonable interpretation of the dream. And then Joseph moves from interpreting the dream as a sage to giving counsel to the most powerful man on earth. But it's wise counsel, right? If you believe there are going to be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine, and it's absolute, God set the course. That's why he said it twice. It's going to happen. If you are in charge of maintaining ma'at, you've got to act on this information. And so he tells him wise counsel. It's really interesting in the tradition of the history of ancient Egypt. 
there are stories about this man, Joseph. There are stories about how he prepared Egypt for this famine. There are stories of him building canals. One of the canals that goes out of the Nile up in the northern part near Memphis is called Joseph's Canal. That's rooted in traditions. Now, then go in the Bible. There's nothing that's talked about in the Bible, but it's part of the tradition, the oral tradition that's been passed on for centuries and centuries and centuries. So you know what's going to happen. Sestorus II is going to appoint Joseph to be the overseer, which is an extraordinary, when you think that's an extraordinary leap for him. This guy been in prison. The cupbearer tells him about it and comes in. Tells him the interpretation of the dream, gives him counsel, and Pharaoh says, You're the man who's going to do it. How lucky. And so you put only one word in the margin of your Bible after the next paragraph the providence and sovereignty of God. It's not a coincidence. Chuck Swindoll, in my Bible study this morning, we had an extensive discussion about this. Chuck Swindoll says, if you believe in the sovereignty and providence of God, these words should no longer be in your vocabulary. Coincidence, luck, chance, or fate. Do you agree with that? So predetermined, so how can you argue? Well, if your theology believes that, which it, it does, then what Swindoll is saying is if we really believe in the sovereignty of God, we probably should eliminate coincidence, chance, fate, luck from our vocabulary. Now, I want you to think about that. Do you really, do you really agree with him? One of the guys in, in the class this morning said, well, are you telling me that God is really concerned about the score of the Oscar game? Only Nebraska would ask the question. <laughs> so how would you answer that question? Of course. Is God interested in the mundane, innocuous things of life? Or just the really big things about life? Draw the line. That's it. Where do you draw the line in terms of what God is doing? You see, this, and and, and it's important to bring that up here because this increases, the more you think about this, this increases the tension we feel between God's sovereignty and his providence and our responsible freedom. Because if you take what Swindoll is saying, and I totally agree, it's in a great little essay he wrote, but if you take what he's saying, you can logically reach the conclusion, well, then I'm really not free. I'm really a robot type of person. I'm like an automaton. Is that right? No, that, that... Well, and I mean, the, really, the correct way to ask the question then is, does the Bible teach that? No. Does the Bible teach that because God is sovereign, his providence, his providence means he's involved in, in space-time history, if his providence is real, does the Bible then say, well, then, yeah, that's what we are. We're really kind of robots. That's not how the Bible presents it. Because you have, let me just illustrate, I want to just, 
this tension you live with. But you have, let's go to, for example, a passage like Ephesians 1, where Ephesians 1, Paul talks about election. He talks about predestination and all of those things. Those are the words of God's sovereignty, God's providence. But then you read a verse like John 6, 47, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. Paul talks about salvation with the words like election, predestination. But other passages of the Bible say you have to believe. You have to put your faith. In the Bible, the New Testament, I'm thinking particularly like James and other epistles, where half of the book of James, the verbs are in the imperative mood. They're commands. And if they're commands, the assumption is I am supposed to obey them. But I also have the opportunity, the capacity to not obey them. So am I responsibly free? I'm I'm getting into some issues that are really important for you and me to think about. What do you mean responsible? We are accountable for the decisions we make. I don't like the phrase free will. Everybody uses it. I don't like the phrase free will, mainly because it isn't biblical, but isn't a biblical word, but it's still okay to use it. But it's responsible freedom in the sense that the decisions we make, the choices we make, we are responsible. We're accountable for that. One of my favorite verses that really illustrates this tension is, and I think I may have mentioned this before, but Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, the 12. And he's, you know, they're during the Passover meal together, and he's about to institute the Lord's Supper and all that. But he says, tonight, one of you is going to betray me. And then he adds, according to the scriptures. That's focusing on what? God's sovereignty. This is part of the plan. Semicolon. But woe to that man. It would be better if he were never born. What's that focusing on? Responsible choice of Judas. Judas responsibly, freely chose to betray Jesus. But Judas' betrayal was part of the plan. Can you put those two together? Or do you live with the tension? That's why, and I know a number of you, I, I draw on the board railroad tracks. And the right-hand side of the railroad tracks, divine sovereignty. The left-hand side of the railroad tracks, responsible freedom. This illustrates that. So here you have, in the context of this marvelous example of God's providence, God is taking care of Joseph, and God is the one that's elevating Joseph to this position of number two or number three in ancient Egypt under Sistorus II. It's an extraordinary example of that. And yet all the actors in this drama are responsibly freely acting or choosing. And then you read a story like this in the scriptures, which is part of God's revelation. Can you bring that kind of truth into 2022. Let me, let me throw a little, little wrench into, into the cog here. So <clears throat> when, when Satan tempted Christ, he did it for 40 days, and then he, he said, uh, I'm, not, I'll wait till, uh, till the right time. <clears throat> I'm paraphrasing badly. But, and then when, when uh, there's a point in, in Luke where <clears throat> Um, it says, and Satan entered Judas. 
and Satan then became Judas, or, or, or Judas became Satan's automaton. So either, either you're under the sovereignty of God or you're an automaton of Satan. <laughs> I'm not sure there, it's only those two there's choices. Still, there's still choice involved. But in, in terms of the way I would read, and you, you are, you're, it's a very, very important part of, of the narrative in Luke's gospel, an account of the upper room. Um, it, you, you recall that he, that is uh, Judas, has already made the decision to betray Jesus, has received the 30 pieces of silver for that betrayal, is part of the plot and the plan. And because he made all those choices, Satan now sees him as an available agent. And, and, and he's the incarnation of Satan, which is probably the right way to think about that. And so Satan is then empowering and energizing him to complete this act. But he already made that decision. You see what I'm saying? So you're right with Satan entering him. The, the Bible says in, in Revelation chapter 13, and apparently... The beast, who uh, is also called the Antichrist, the beast will become the incarnation of Satan. But in all of these cases, it's those responsible decisions that humans make where they're, in effect, selling themselves to Satan. If you're familiar with, with uh, uh, Goethe's great play about, uh, his name just slipped my mind, he sells his soul to Satan and uh, anyway, it's a very famous play, and I can't remember the guy's name. But anyway, all of those are, are, pre, are the preliminary actions are a series of decisions by this individual to choose evil, choose evil, choose evil, and Satan uses it. That's, I mean, that's a great question. It's a great point to bring up, but that, I think, is part of the, the, the story and narrative of the upper room. Can, can Satan tempt Christians? Yes. Absolutely. And if he tempts them, can Christians succumb to that? <clears throat> Absolutely. So we don't have it already in heaven simply by having seen Christ as Savior. Because everybody, we have to live in God's will, in God's way, and by history. Because we are subject, right, to being taken off those rails, maybe and headed in a way that doesn't complement Christ. Now, yes, but you are not making the argument that a, per a person who puts their faith in Christ is not secure in their salvation. You're not arguing that. What you are saying is that a believer who puts their faith in Christ has now the capacity, the power, to, re to resist Satan's temptation. Before we became a, a Christian, before we put our faith in Christ, this is going to sound weird, but we could not not sin. Double negative. We could not not sin. But we put our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells us. We now have the resurrection of power of Christ available to us through the Holy Spirit. We now have the capacity and power to resist that temptation and not give into it. And that is the distinctive threat. And this is part then of 
we're getting way beyond the text here, but that's part of what is in the teaching and the Apostle Paul particularly of sanctification. Where now, as we begin our walk of loving obedience with Christ, we begin to see the tools we have available to resist temptations and power and luring and deception of Satan. We have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. All of them have the capacity to undermine everything we believe and everything we stand for. But as the Apostle Paul says, and as Peter says, but they both talk about the same thing, resist the devil. Do not give in to him. And put on the whole armor of God and all these various commands. All right, well, we got down a bunny trail <laughs> that got way off, and now we're coming back to the text. But I wanted to raise, I really do, I want to, I want, this is something you have to constantly think about, the sovereignty and providence of God in life and the responsible freedom of the individual human being. They are both true. There's a tension there. So God's sovereignty and providence is real, but the responsible freedom of the human being is also real. Do we know, though, for sure where Judas is? I mean, could he had such regret and asked for forgiveness? For, Ed, there is no evidence that he did that. No, I no 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 no. I I'm not I'm not dismissing your question. My only answer is there's no evidence he did that. He's called the son of perdition, and I don't know. We don't talk like who was the last time you heard somebody use the word perdition in a sentence. Nobody talks like that. But that is a that is a a, a name for him. He's the son of hell. He's the son of of judgment. He's the son of condemnation. When I was in graduate school, I, I and, and my theological degree, I had to write a paper. Was Judas saved? Verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. The proposal is what Joseph said in verse 34 and following. And again, I remind you that Pharaoh restores the second. As Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Now, men, don't read too much into that in the sense that don't think Pharaoh's stores the second had come to personal faith in God and now believes the Holy Spirit dwells. I don't think we can. <coughs> He's using the language. He's using the language that was part of the worldview. Dreams are how the gods communicate to us. Wise men help us to interpret the dreams. They are connecting with the spiritual world. That's what he's saying about him. Joseph indicates a man who is in touch with the God. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there's no one Discern, so discerning and wise as you, you shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. That's an extraordinary declaration. Another way of paraphrasing that would be language something like this. Joseph, you are the second most powerful man in Egypt. I, Pharaoh, I am the only one who's more powerful. 
I mean, isn't that remarkable? Isn't that remarkable? Joseph goes from being a prisoner to now the second most powerful man in the most powerful nation on earth at that time, ancient Egypt. I mean, that's how do you explain that? God. <laughs> I mean, this is God's providence. We've seen it in last week. We saw it twice. The Lord is with Joseph. So, now what I want you to notice here is these next verses, there are six very specific things that Pharaoh does. And Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. Now, the, the, the Hebrew word is hand, so I'm not quite sure what that means, but you know what a signet is, don't you? Signet ring? Nice. You know, we, yeah, we found scads of those in archaeology all over the place. But that was the symbol of authority. So as Joseph would issue a decree, you know, they put the wax on it, he pressed the signet ring of the king in there, the pharaoh in there, that's king. To break that signet, uh, to break that seal, was a capital crime. So that's just a symbol of extraordinary authority that he's given to Joseph. Look, at, look as it continues, middle of verse 42. And clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. Possibly that gold chain also, which the signet held, uh, would, 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 would be held, would, would hang. We don't know that for sure. But these are all symbols of authority. And he made him ride in his second chariot, meaning the first chariot was the chariot of the pharaoh. Joseph has his second chariot. And these aren't, um, these aren't quite like the chariots you see in Ben-Hur, where they're racing around the, the, great, uh, the great circus in Rome. These are rather spacious chariots. Several people could be in the chariot at the same time. So it, it's, a, it's a symbol, as with the signet and the chain and all that, it's a, segment, a, a symbol of power and authority that this, this pharaoh is giving to Joseph. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Then he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zapnana He gives Joseph an Egyptian name. Now, nowhere else in the Bible are we going to see him called Zanathapanea. But he has a, an Egyptian name. This is a hieroglyphic name that will be written out, published all over Egypt. Then, he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, a priest of On. So Joseph now marries an Egyptian woman who is the daughter of one of the priests of the polytheistic religion of Egypt. Did he have to suffer? Yes. <laughs> He will bear him two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. The Bible does not make a moral judgment one way or the other about this. Because Joseph does not marry a Jewish girl. You would think that Joseph would say, just a minute, Pharaoh, time out. I need, I need to go up 
to 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 Goshen. I I need to be a part, not Goshen. I need to go up to Canaan. I need to go up to where my dad lives, and I need to find a wife up there, like Rebecca and Isaac did. Remember, like Jacob wanted his son. I mean, you know, <laughs> Joseph marries an Egyptian girl, the daughter of one of the pagan priests of Egypt. We know nothing about her. We know nothing about what happens to her or him in terms of the relationship, except she gives him two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who will be adopted. We'll see this at the end of this book of Genesis, whom Jacob will adopt as his grandson. And because Reuben had violated by, by going in and raping one of Jacob's wife, Bilnah, he lost the right of the firstborn. Remember that? The right of the firstborn is given to Joseph's boys, Ephraim and Manasseh. And Ephraim and Manasseh will get the two largest land grants. After Joshua's conquest of Canaan, the two largest land grants will go to Joseph's boys. So all of that is a part of what's going on here. The providence and sovereignty of God. No moral, ethical questions are raised. We know nothing about this woman, except she gives birth to two sons who become a part of the covenant community and will receive the largest land grants in Canaan. All that's pretty significant. One time when I was teaching this, a young lady stood up and said, will we see Anastoth in heaven? I don't know. <laughs> you would think Joseph might have witnessed to her, given her a copy of the four spiritual laws, might have told her all about, you know, I, I'm being humorous there in case you missed it. We, we just don't know. We absolutely do not know. But it's just intriguing. These six acts of Pharaoh, signet ring, the clothing, the gold chain, the chariot, his Egyptian name, and his Egyptian wife are all illustrations of the extraordinary, unimaginable authority Pharaoh is giving to a Jew. God is with Joseph. There is no human explanation to this. God is with Joseph. And Sistorus II elevates Joseph to the second most powerful position in the ancient kingdom of Egypt. And the text tells us Joseph, in verse 46, is 30 years old. Think of all he's been through. Think of those early dreams that he had and gets his brothers all angry with him. Thrown into the pit, bought by the Ishmaelites, sold to Potiphar. Ends up in Potiphar's house. He's tempted by Potiphar's wife. Ends up in prison. I mean, all that he's been through now, he's the most second, second most powerful man in the world, in a sense. <laughs> he's 30. When he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh, and now through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. He gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in cities, he put them in every city, the food from the fields around it. 
And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the land, sand, of the sea, until he ceased to measure, could not be measured. Before the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called his firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God made me forget all my hardship in my father's house. The name of his second was Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of affliction. Which is really important. Joseph does not give his boys Egyptian names. He gives his boys Hebrew names. Manasseh and Ephraim are Hebrew names. There is no evidence of Pharaoh rejecting this, pushing back on this, not allowing him to do this. That is, it's extremely important for us. Because these two sons will become very, very important sons in the dispersion of the land grants of, of, of the Jews when they get into the land of Canaan and conquered under Joseph and so on. And uh, Manasseh means forget, be, being able to forget, and Ephraim means fruitful. The seven years, I'm in verse 53, the seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. Joseph said, there was famine in all the land, but in all the land of Egypt was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread all over the land, Joseph opened the storehouse and sold it to the Egyptians, where the famine was severe. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because famine was severe over all the earth. Now, we only have a few minutes left, but I want you to understand here again the sovereignty and providence of God. There's now a famine that is swept through. It says over all the earth. Maybe it's all over the earth. but certainly eastern Mediterranean, the earth, the world at that time. But anyway, there's a famine. Where is the only place where there's grain and food? In Egypt. And it's interesting that Joseph is not giving the food away. He's selling it. So it's, it's an extraordinary illustration of God's providence and sovereignty, but also God's grace in the sense that God has enabled Joseph to meet through the plans he had, seven years storing the grain and all that because seven years of time were coming, to preserve life. Because life will be preserved because God had his man in Egypt. And so here's God's grace and God's compassion through one of his servants to meet the physical needs of human beings. Is God interested in meeting the physical needs of human beings? Yes, he is. All right. Now, chapter 41 is really an important chapter. And uh, I, we floated out some thoughts and got you to think some good questions as a result of it. And again, stressing the sovereignty of God in all this. How God has, in, in a very real sense, put Joseph in this position of power, position of influence. How, how large was the landmass of Egypt? In miles, I mean, what north, south, east, and west? Well, I, I can't give you acres, but if you, I mean, if you, the Nile is the key. But if you're going from the, the Queen Victor, uh, Lake Victoria, which is where 
rises all the way up to the delta, you're about 1,500 miles. 1,500 miles. I mean, you're from the central part of Africa all the way to the, to the Mediterranean Sea. Now, in terms of, I mean, you know, it's a fairly, fairly narrow valley. I mean, the Nile Valley itself. I mean, you know, it's probably about uh, four, four to six miles. Other place because there are waterfalls. I mean, it's an extraordinary river, actually. But when you get to the Nile, the Nile Delta is massive. It's the largest delta in the world. It's a massive, very, very wide delta. And uh, I, I don't have that statistic on top of my head, how many acres it is, but it's the largest delta. But it's because of this massive river that pushes all the silt and all that as it flows from the south toward the north. And he distributed that too. It said, my words in scripture, he distributed uh, throughout that area, so that people just that's correct. Yeah, it mentions to the cities of Egypt. He's these storehouses are all over the all over uh, the uh, nation of Egypt. That's right. Now we only have a few minutes. Why is this important? Because this is how the Jews will get to Egypt. Because you remember, while all this is going on, you have Jacob and his clan is still up in Canaan and Beersheba area. And are they going to experience the famine? Are they going to experience the something? Yes. And they're going to get word you can go down to Egypt. So what's going to happen as a result of this, the 70 people of Joseph's clan are going to be relocated to Goshen, to the land of Egypt, in the Nile Delta, on the east side of the Nile Delta. And it will then, over the next 430 years, become the nation of Israel. So, now, it, we're not going to get this done, but we're going to move to chapter 42, because this begins this process. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, this is funny, why do you look at one another? Doesn't that sound like a dad, you know? Why are you guys just sitting here? Behold, I've heard there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went to buy grain in Egypt. But Joseph did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brother, for he feared that harm might happen to him. I thought, Joseph, I thought Jacob had 12 sons. 10 sons go down, Benjamin stays home. Where's the other son? Joseph. Coincidence. Chance. Fate. So when Dolph says, eliminate those words from your vocabulary. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. Question. How long ago did Joseph's ten brothers sell him to the Ishmaelites? Twenty years. Twenty years have passed. What had the boys told Jacob? He was dead. He was attacked. The wild animal killed Joseph. The blood on his robe is from the wild animal. 
So Jacob's all this 20 years has assumed that Joseph is dead. Did the 10 boys know that? No, they knew he wasn't dead. They sold him into slavery. As God, through Joseph, preserves life, God, through Joseph, is going to purge the conscience of these brothers. God, through Joseph, is going to bring these ten brothers to repentance. Joseph, God, through Joseph, is going to bring transformation to these ten brothers. There are several things going on in chapter 42. Not only is God going to preserve life through Joseph because of all that he had done, God is also going to deal with the heart of these ten brothers. And so those two things are going on constantly. Behold, I've heard that there's, uh, I'm in verse, uh, what verse am I in? Verse 6. Now Joseph was governor. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Now let's read that again. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Where have you read that before? In the dream. Way back in chapter 37, when Joseph is 10 year old, say, hey, guys, I had a dream last night. You're going to bow down to me. And, of course, that won great influence and friendship with his brothers. But what Joseph said 20 years ago has now happened. The brothers don't know that. Does Joseph? Look at the next verse. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. Oh, my goodness. This is really, I've thought about this a long time. Joseph had no idea when he woke up that morning that his ten brothers would show up in front of him, bow down before him. He didn't have a lot of time to think about it. But as he saw his brothers recognize him, they bet on him and all that stuff. It seems to me he had two choices. Number one, hug them and embrace them and have a great family reunion. Well, actually he had three choices. Number three, or number two, to get revenge. These 20 years that they've had me go through, I can get revenge. Be motivated by vengeance. Third, deal with them in a way to purge their conscience. Deal with them in such a way for them to face the consequences of what they did. Joseph loves them. Joseph is going to be reunited. It's going to be a fantastic family reunion coming up. But Joseph, he's wise, he's shrewd, not in a negative sense. But he sees an opportunity. He has to find out some information. He has to find out, are these guys genuine? Because remember, they betrayed him and deceived him earlier, 20 years ago. So the text says this. He recognized them. But 
He treated them, now it's a simile, like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Now I read from the ESV translation. Some of your translations might have a little bit of a different adverb. Harshly. Harshly, roughly. So he knows who they are, but he's not going to treat them as brothers. He wants to probe. Where are you guys? Where's your heart? I want to find out about my dad. I want to find out about the family. So he poses these questions. Ugh. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them back in chapter 37. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. What does he mean by that? Well, you know Egypt is vulnerable, just like all of you are. We are in famine too. So you're spies from Canaan. Listen. Egypt is about to experience an invasion in the Nile Delta from a group of Semitic peoples called the Hyksos. And Egypt is always fearful of lands to the east, the Arabic tribes, even way over in the Mesopotamian Valley. And Joseph is saying, which is normal, which is reasonable, you're spies. You are here to see how vulnerable Egypt really is. You're not telling me the truth. You are here to gather data in front. You are the CIA agents of the Eastern powers, our historic enemies. And I don't welcome CIA agents in my court. Now, I, those last two sentences I made up, you know that. That's not in the Bible. Okay. They said to him, no, my Lord. Your servants have come to buy food. We're sons of one man. We're honest men. Your servants have never been spies. They made three statements. Two of them are true. One of them is false. We are the sons of one man. True. Your servants have never been spies. True. We're honest men. Not true. And Joseph knew it. And he said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land you've come to see. You are looking at our vulnerability. You're spies. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. Behold, the youngest in this day is with our father, and one is no more. That is, one is dead. And he's standing right in front of them. They're rehearsing the story they told to Jacob. And that brother standing right in front of them. Are they honest men? But Joseph said, it is as I said to you, you are spies. And Joseph sets up two tests of his brothers. Two tests for them to demonstrate their honesty. For Joseph to see that their conscience and hearts are being purged. If you want to know what those two tests are, you have to come back next week. I love to be able to end class like that. <laughs> I didn't intend it that way. It just actually just happened. But the sovereignty of God. He did. <laughs>
All right. I'm going to pray here and I'll let you go because I've got to get to another class. And my normal route that I go is closed because of construction that is now all over the city of Omaha to the blessing and honor of great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That was said with biting cynicism that dripped from my mouth. Father, thank you for Joseph. Thank you for the text of Scripture, which reminds us that you are a sovereign God. Your providence is real. You are directing the affairs of human beings to accomplish your great purposes. And uh, what you're doing here with Joseph is simply extraordinary. You're going to preserve human life in the midst of horrific famine, but you're also going to instrumentally guide Jacob and his clan to get down to Egypt. And that safety and that cocoon and that wonderful provision on the eastern side of the Nile Delta where they will grow into a nation your people, the nation of Israel, whom you will then deliver and free, give them your law, and fulfill your promise to Abraham, land. So, Lord, your plan is on track. You are accomplishing your purposes in your timing, using your people to accomplish your purposes. Lord, I believe that's still going on today. You are still a sovereign, providential God. We cannot understand everything you're doing. And we have to understand that every time a human being makes a decision, responsible, but God is superintending all things to accomplish his purposes. And as Joseph will say to his brothers, you guys meant this for evil when you threw me into a pit, but God meant it for good. Lord, you have that extraordinary capacity as the sovereign Lord of this universe to bring good out of evil. The greatest illustration of that is the cross. Horrible evil, killing of an innocent man, the Lord Jesus, to accomplish the redemption of the human race. So, Lord, we have to trust you with these things, believing that you are in control, that things are not just happening, but you are ultimately going to bring good out of these things to accomplish your perfect, purposeful end in that we trust. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. See you next week, guys.